Well, good morning, church. Hope you all had a wonderful and Merry Christmas uh, these past couple of days, spending time with family and friends. We're going to study God's Word together, so if you'd open your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, so almost to the very back of your Bible, is where we're going to close out our Advent series uh, here this morning, and live stream friends joining us, welcome, so glad that you're joining us as well. So we've... We've named this series Answers at Advent, and we've sought to answer a few questions so far. Can God be trusted? Can my past be erased? What should the world do with Jesus? And then we conclude here this morning with what future does God have for us? And if you want to kind of put it all together, all the threads that we've been looking at, the big themes we've explored go something like this. Fulfillment, he has come. Atonement, it is finished. Resurrection, he is Lord. Consummation, all is well. I think this is a fitting way to end the series in Advent as we look back at the first Advent and arrival of Jesus Christ, but we also look forward. You know, 10 words have framed so much of the confession of the historic church over the past 2,000 years. Christ has died. Christ has risen, Christ will come again. There are worse ways to spend Advent than to think about the future that God has for us when he returns. Revelation chapter 21, I'll read verse three and four. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. You know, we love um, decorations and lights in our neighborhood. Matter of fact, even when I was a kid, I remember my dad would load us up in the car and we'd go find the most lit up streets in New Orleans just to drive down the streets and I'd be looking out both sides of the station wagon in the back and uh, just looking and drinking it all in, right? So my wife and I will walk through the neighborhood and we'll see the lights and uh, one of the ones that apparently we missed until recently, we hadn't noticed it before, Uh, But we walked down one street in our neighborhood and we saw um, an unexpected thing. You know, like you get used to the things that you normally see at Christmas time, right? There's the frosty and there's the reindeer and there's nativity scenes and snowflakes and all kinds of stuff, right? All the the things that come out. Uh, But this one, we're walking by and we kind of did a double take and we looked to our left and there is about a 14 foot inflatable St. Bernard dog with a Santa hat on. And... Uh, that one was unexpected, uh, I have to say. You know, we kind of looked at each other like, well, are we missing something? Like, what's the, cu-? There, there must be some cultural reference that we're unaware of, of a massive St. Bernard, like as tall as the house, St. Bernard dog with a red hat on. And so we were kind of wondering, are we the only ones that are puzzled in our neighborhood when we walk past the giant dog? We love dogs, not against dogs. But the, those neighbors are probably wonderful. I just don't get it. I don't understand the, cu- the cultural reference there. And here I am, so all week, uh, we, we walk that block and I'm seeing that. And then all week, I'm spending time meditating on Revelation 20 and 21 this week. And I thought about this. So how much would it freak out our neighbors if we had a giant 
inflatable lion that was sinking its teeth into a maimed dragon. So just go with me here. I think it has potential. Uh, <laughs> would it traumatize the neighborhood children? Uh, yes, probably it would. Would it connect to Advent? Definitely. Because we're seeing here, actually in, in 20 and in 21, the, there's the serpent, the dragon. You saw him one chapter ago. He was slain one chapter ago. And then there's all this newness that breaks out in, in chapter 21. So Advent, friends, Advent is good news for a world that's overrun with evil. It's, a good, it's good news for a world filled with dragons and serpents and monsters. It's that kind of world. The book of Revelation is drawing all those symbols and Babylon and the great city and the great dragons. It's filled with all that uh, symbol-laden language, right? Advent is good news for a world filled with evil and suffering because Advent says for everybody who trusts in Jesus, everybody who follows Jesus, the heaven-sent Messiah, it says this, all the joy you've been waiting for is coming when he returns. And all the pain you've known and experienced, it ends when he returns. That's Advent. It's great news for a world under, overrun with evil. So John describes the future that God has for us who believe and follow Jesus. The first thing that we notice here is the glory of what's missing. The glory of what's missing. So you remember the first words in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We'll look at the, the first verse of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So those very first, that very first verse of chapter 21 is hearkening all the way back to the first page, not just the first page of the Bible, the first sentence in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and in this new beginning, God creates a new heavens and a new earth. And the reason that we're awaiting this new heavens and new earth is because if you're taking notes, this is in your notes, the world was made good in the beginning, but sin brought misery. So our passage both harkens back to Genesis chapter one, when all was made and it was all very good, and it also harkens back to Genesis chapter three, when everything fell. Adam and Eve sinned against God and their disobedience brought ruin into the world, right? Satan was in the garden and he deceived them and he tricked them into disobeying God, and then sin comes into the world and it takes over the control system of everything and it just brings ruin and misery and suffering and, and death and estrangement and all the rest, right? Before the fall, this is hard for us to imagine because we live in a world wallpapered with fallenness. Before the fall, the world was good. There was no sin, there was no sickness, there was no disease, there was no death, there was no alienation, there was no guilt and fear and shame, there were no hospitals, there was no DHR, there were no chemo treatments, all right? All these things that we think about that are just a regular part of life in a world that's, that's messed up, it wasn't there before the fall. The Bible unfolds a story of human sin and suffering but also a story of God's relentless purpose. God's relentless purpose. So you just read through the Old Testament and the only thing that is as persistent as the sinfulness of man 
is the steadfast love of God. It's called his hesed. It is, an, it is a relentless, wave after wave, you can't stop me, I'm coming for you, kind of love. It is just the, the mercy of God barreling toward a broken world. It's an awesome thing to read the Old Testament and see this, right? One of the primary metaphors of God's relationship with his people Israel is the, the metaphor of marriage. He is like a husband and Israel is like his wife and God loved and rescued her from a super abusive guy named Egypt. And he brought her through his, his bride, he brought her through uh, the, the Red Sea on dry ground and then he buried her oppressor under the water and there on the shores of the beach, Israel broke out the tambourines and they sang the song of the Lord, Exodus chapter 15, the very first hymn in the Bible. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. It was an awesome moment, and then God says, meet me at the mountain, we'll have a destination marriage, and he marries his bride there at Mount Sinai, and all the terms of the covenant, and what it would look like for them to be faithful to their God. It was all spelled out there, the wedding ceremony, right? But the rest of the story is tragic, because she can't get her eyes off of every other suitor and false god and would-be uh, mate, right? So she's constantly looking. Matter of fact, spiritual unfaithfulness is wrapped in the metaphor of adultery, Throughout the prophets, God is speaking in this kind of way. Matter of fact, God would tell the prophet Hosea, marry a woman who doesn't want you so that you, yourself, the prophet, can be an illustration of what it's like to be me, married to this woman. You provide everything and she just keeps looking elsewhere. That's my story of marriage to Israel, right? The unfaithfulness of Israel, kind of these three things throughout the Old Testament, the unfaithfulness of Israel, the consequences of sin, and the steadfast love of God. Friends, the reasons that the the church still sings about the reality of our sin and that our hearts are prone to wander and leave the God we love, it's it's not, we don't sing those songs about our sin because we're, we're trying to be morbidly introspective. We sing those songs about our sin because confessing our sin is better than the alternative denying it, dismissing it, diminishing it. The cross doesn't get smaller when we acknowledge our sin, it gets bigger. Our sins, they are many, right? His mercy is more. So when we reflect on how many our sins are, the cross only gets bigger, his mercy only gets bigger in our eyes. We're more amazed, right, as as Christians, we look to the return of Christ, not simply for the end of suffering, I hope you feel this because I think this is a mark of Christian maturity. We look forward to the return of Jesus as the end of sin. Our broken longings won't be broken anymore. Our hearts will not be divided. They will be united in the praise of God. Heart, soul, mind, strength, body, everything, every component part of our humanity will be be pressed into the service of the worship of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's gonna be Awesome. I hope when you think about the coming new creation, that lights you up, that prospect. Johnny Erickson Tata is a woman who has suffered tremendously. She's been quadriplegic since a diving accident when she was 17 years old, more than five decades ago. 
And listen to what she says about the difference between looking at heaven for the end of suffering and looking at heaven for the end of sin. She, she writes these words. You look at me in this wheelchair, paralyzed for 52 years, and most people would think, oh, you're looking forward to your new body. And yeah, that's one of those fringe benefits. That's a striking statement. A quadriplegic, after 52 years, a fringe benefit is a new body. She says, but I'm looking forward to the new heart. A heart free of manipulating others with precisely timed phrases. A heart free of fudging the truth. A heart free from hogging the spotlight. A heart free of not believing the best of others. I can't wait to have a heart free of sin. The picture of the future stands out for what's not there. That's what we see here in our text. What's not there? Satan, sin, evil, death, tears, and pain. <laughs> yeah, I got um, one of the gifts that I received yesterday is uh, I had heard tell of noise canceling earbuds. I'd heard about these things, right? And, uh, and yesterday I got some and I put them in and it was pretty magical, right? You, you don't realize how much ambient sound there is in any room, just, just white noise and sound and, and how much of that is instantly filtered out when you put in these, you know, they seal in your ears. It's pretty, pretty fancy, right? And, and it seals in there and you just, all this stuff is canceled out, right? Well, and if Revelation 21 sounds a lot different than earlier chapters of the book of Revelation, it's because the noise is gone. There, all this white noise of sin and shame and guilt, right? the gravitational pull of temptation, it's gone. The enemy, the accuser is gone. That's why it's so quiet. You don't have him in your ears anymore because the dragon is gone. The dragon is broken. Death is no more. Death has expired. Verse four says, God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Many of you, um, it takes an army to take care of our preschoolers every Sunday. My wife serves on the team uh, working for preschool every Sunday. And every Sunday, they're wiping tears from eyes. Every single Sunday, the preschool team can tell you there's a meltdown. And I'm not talking about the preschool workers. Uh, I'm talking about there's gonna be a meltdown. Some kid is just gonna absolutely lose it. And you're gonna see their faces will actually be physically wet, like their faces will shine because the tears will just stand. Even after they're done crying, the tears are just standing there on their, on their faces because they got those puffy cheeks, right? And so this, the tears just sit there. They got nowhere to run, right? And so every week there's tears to be wiped away. Can you imagine a more tender image of the almighty God than for him to say, I'm not gonna sub this one out. I'm not gonna delegate it. I wanna wipe every single tear away personally. The God of heaven wiping away tears, drying the faces of his suffering people. I cannot imagine the dimensions of grief and suffering that would be in a room like this. But the good news is, all our tears will be wiped away. All our suffering will end. Death will be no more. Sin will be no more for the old order of things has passed away. The glory of what's missing, and second, the glory of who is there. The glory of who's there. 
Look, verse three, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. So woven through the whole story of the Bible is this truth. God's eternal purpose was to dwell among a people he has made his own. That's a very pregnant sentence, but I'm gonna unpack it for us by walking us through the entire Old Testament as briefly as I possibly can. All right, so I'll say it again. God's eternal purpose was to dwell among people he has made his own. So I'm gonna walk us through five images that progressively unfold as you read the story of the Old Testament, and it begins with this, a garden. A garden, you see it there in Genesis chapter two, it says that God planted a garden in Eden, it means a garden of delights, that's what the word Eden means, and he planted it in the east, so it's, it's east, right? And it's, it's not just a garden, it's a garden temple. So God creates this garden temple. A temple is a place where God and man meet together, and that's exactly what this is. God walks with man in the cool of the garden. It's a, it's a place of interfacing with God. It's a place of encountering God. Temples in the ancient world, they faced east. The temple of Solomon faced east. You entered it from the east. The same thing is true here. This temple faces east. That's why when they're ejected from the garden, there's a cherubim only on one side at the entrance on the east. The cherubim is there guarding entrance back into the garden temple. It's a, it's a picture. Eden, friends, is a picture of unhindered fellowship in the presence of God in an unspoiled environment. That's what's going on there in the first couple of chapters of the Bible. Eden, friends, was not intended to be the end of the story, but it was a beginning, and it was a beautiful, beautiful beginning. It tells us that we were created for fellowship with God, for enjoying the presence and nearness of God. Now, we know what happened. They sinned against God. They fell away from God. They were driven out from the presence of God. And then you fast forward. You keep reading Genesis. You get all the way to the end. Right, and, and they move to Egypt to survive a famine that is about to break out and God is providing that for them so that he can sustain his people. And then they get to Egypt and they start multiplying and they're filling Goshen, they're filling that whole land, right? And it makes Pharaoh nervous. And the Pharaoh that was favorable to Joseph, that Pharaoh's long gone and there's a new Pharaoh in town and he's worried about all this multiplication going on among these Hebrew people so he makes them his slaves and God rescues Israel and he marries her and he says to her, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he travels with them, he will be with them. Matter of fact, when they sin against God and God threatens and says, my angel will go with you but I'm not coming, Moses says, that's the doomsday scenario. If your presence doesn't go with us, we don't wanna go, don't lead us out from here. Your presence is everything. It's the mark of your people. How will the world know that you've been favorable toward us if you're not with us, right? God has intended from the beginning to dwell among a people he has made his own. That leads to the next picture of the unfolding story, a garden, then a dwelling. So after God gives them the law, he gives instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And what's the language there in Exodus chapter 25? They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. This is a new development. I said that this would be a progressive unfolding moving forward. It's a new development in history because God, he had walked with, with man in the garden, but he hadn't lived there. 
He hadn't dwelled in a permanent kind of way with his people until this moment. This is a new thing. The tabernacle was a tent for God to live in. It was God's own tent. Doesn't mean that God loved tents. Doesn't mean that God hated houses or God hated temples. That's not the point. His people lived in a tent. God said, give me one of those. His people are homeless and traveling everywhere. He says, give me the stuff that helps us travel and we'll camp down together every night. I'm gonna live among you. And his tent was right in the center. When the, when the cloud stopped and they said, we're, breaking, we're making camp here tonight, tents went up as far as the eye could see, two million strong, people in all directions. There's four on the north, four tribes on the north, four tribes on the east, four tribes on the west, four tribes on the south, and God's tent right in the center. He tabernacled among his people. And even in their sin, God made a way for them to draw near to him. So the whole sacrificial system you read about in Exodus, that's a provision so that his people could come near because they're sinful people and God is holy. How are we gonna come close to each other without my holiness not torching my people? And so he says, you'll come through sacrifice. You'll come underneath sacrificial blood. It's a temporary provision and it taught the people three things. God is holy, sin is serious, but we can come near to him through blood that was shed. That's the sacrificial system, right? It was a blessing, a wonderful blessing, but here's the problem. If you read the book of Hebrews, you learn this. You read the Old Testament, you learn it as well, is the sacrificial system wasn't changing people's hearts. Lambs were dying, but hearts weren't changing, right? The promised land didn't make them cherish God's presence. The temple didn't keep them from idolatry, so eventually they would lose both. They would lose the land and they would lose the temple. In one fell swoop, Babylon comes in, destroys the city, destroys the temple, carries them out of their homeland hundreds of miles away, and now they live in Babylon as exiles. And the Old Testament would end with God speaking to the prophet Malachi saying this. So you would think those are absolutely desperate, hopeless times, it's over. And here's God's last words through Malachi. I will send my messenger and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And once Malachi closes, it's 400 years of silence. And the silence ends when the angels sing over the hills of Bethlehem, good news of a great joy that will be for all the people for today the Lord comes in, the Lord comes and John will tell us what he's doing. He's coming to tabernacle among us. He's gonna come live here with us. God, Emmanuel, God with us. That's Advent. And just like in the Old Testament, after they built the tabernacle, it says the glory filled the place. It filled the tabernacle. John says the word became flesh and tabernacled. He uses that word. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And just like they saw the glory filled the tabernacle, it says, and we beheld his glory. But it wasn't smoke and fire. It was we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only son of God, full of grace and truth. So we move from a garden to a dwelling to a person. John chapter one, and moving forward, right, when, when Jesus, he's encountering and engaging with the Jewish leaders and they see J Jesus wrecking the temple. This is the place where God is supposed to meet with man. This was God's idea, this temple. And they saw Jesus wrecking the temple and they're outraged and they said, what sign will you show us for doing these things? And what did Jesus say? 
destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And he was referring to the temple of his own body. In other words, Jesus was saying, the temple is a place where God and man meet, but this temple is going away. I'm the new temple. The only way that sinful people can come near to a holy God is in me now. From now on, the people will engage with God through me. And heads would have been spinning. People would have been saying, wait, that makes no sense. What are we gonna do with the sacrifices? I'm gonna take care of that too, right? He's gonna be the great high priest. He's gonna be the lamb that is offered as well, right? In other words, and you see that happen. Jesus breathes his last, and the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. What's the message? The message comes through loud and clear. Access to God's presence is open for all through Jesus Christ. A person, he's the temple. He's where we meet with God in him and him alone, a garden, a dwelling, a person, a people. So Paul would say to the church at Corinth, you are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you. The risen Christ pours out his spirit on all his people, Jews and Gentiles alike who believe in Messiah. And where they gather, they are being built up, 1 Peter chapter 2, being built up as a holy temple to God. They're priests and they collectively are a temple. You think about the implications of this, church, we are not God's dwelling place, regardless of how we wear Christ's name and regardless of how we steward his gospel. It's not like we can just kind of do whatever we want and say whatever we want and it's, it's all right. No, God, Jesus threatens to remove lampstands if the church makes leadership personalities central rather than Christ and his gospel. He withdraws his blessing if we play games with his word. So 1 Corinthians chapter six, the apostle Paul, he says, get rid of your idolatry and get rid of your evil. Why? He says, because you are God's temple and his temple should be holy. The collective witness and worship of the church should be a holy place because we are a temple. Brooke Hills, may Christ always be central in our worship. Not personalities, not gifts, May Christ's character always be displayed in our lives. May his mission always drive everything that we do, our praying, our sending, our giving, our going, our living. Don't mistake it, at this point, at this period in salvation history, the church is that place on earth where God has chosen to put his name. And the church is that entity through which God has chosen to spread his glory. What we do here, how we live here, how we worship here matters. A garden, a dwelling, a person, a people, a city. So everything in scripture has been preparing us for this scene in Revelation chapter 21. Look again at God's word. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Skip down to verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city. So the city comes down and now you're gonna measure it. Its gates and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. The crazy thing in Revelation 21 is that the New Jerusalem comes down and it's shaped like a cube. Now there are only two cubes in the whole Bible. The Holy of Holies is shaped like a cube and the New Jerusalem is shaped like a cube. Don't miss it. The whole city is one giant Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies in the Old Testament was completely overlaid with gold. The city is covered in gold. The New Jerusalem, you walk on streets of gold, it's redolent, it harkens back to the Old Testament, right? So here, in the beginning, notice these connections. God created the heavens and the earth. In the new beginning, God created a new heavens and a new earth. In the beginning, we see Adam and his bride in the garden temple. In the new beginning, we see the second Adam and his heavenly bride, the church, in a garden city shaped like a temple. This is not coincidence. In the beginning, a river flowed from Eden. In the new beginning, a river flows from the throne of God and everything it touches, it heals. All the way to the ends of the earth, everything it touches in the nations becomes whole. In the beginning, God created the sun as a light for the garden temple. In the new beginning, there's no need for the sun and for Christ's glory lights the whole city. In the beginning, Adam sinned and curses fell and sacrifices needed to be offered. And so the first Jerusalem became a city where blood was ever flowing. But because the second Adam offered himself as a sacrifice, the new Jerusalem will not offer any sacrifices. Instead, we will sing to the slain lamb who offered the final sacrifice and then sat down to get glory from his people, every tribe and tongue that he bought with his blood. The greatest joys we know in this world become faint echoes of the joy that awaits. So just think about how some of these things are seen in our text. You you ever felt, talking about human experience, you ever felt the joy of the birth of a child. You ever recover from a long and dangerous illness? You ever have someone new come to live with you, like say in college, and you become the closest friends? These human joys, earthly experiences that are faint echoes of something else. It's like God built those joys into our own world and into our own lives so that you have the faintest sense of what's coming. Look at them with me, verse three. 
God's dwelling is with humanity. It's like someone new coming to live and it's closer than any bond imaginable. Verse seven, I will be his God and he will be my son. It's like the forming of a family. It's, It's like the first birthday when your parents joyfully bring you home. Verse four, no more death, weeping, or pain. It's like a great recovery. It's like that sigh of relief, right? You're gonna be fine. It's not malignant. Verse two, the holy city is like a bride adorned for her husband. It's it's like a wedding. If you've ever been to a wedding and there's just this feast and this celebration, it's, it's like that. In Revelation 20, the chapter right before this, Satan is called the dragon, that ancient serpent. And what does Jesus do? He wraps a chain around the dragon (laughs) in verse two. And by the time you get to verse 10, you're never gonna hear from the dragon ever again. He's just gone forever. So, So back to my controversial Christmas inflatable that I talked about a few moments ago. You could summarize the whole Bible in six words. Kill the dragon, get the girl. The whole story of the Bible in six words. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Just follow it, think about it. So the serpent is Satan, the hero is Jesus, and the damsel in distress is the people of God, the church. And what happens? As soon as Jesus kills the dragon, what happens? A wedding feast begins. He killed the dragon, he got the girl. And the music starts in the New Jerusalem and the feast is there and it's full and it's glorious. Friends, Advent tells us, remember, remember what's coming. Remember the future that God has for you. What does that do for us? You think about that the future God has for us is worth the wait. It's worth your obedience. It's worth your perseverance. So what do you do? Live by faith in light of Advent. Endure suffering in light of Advent. Rekindle hope in light of Advent and take the gospel to a world overrun with sin and suffering in light of Advent.